Welcome back to Shattered Lives. I'm Kieran Bradley. So we've come to the end. The Regency murder trial at the Special Criminal Court finished on Thursday after 52 days of evidence. The judges will now deliberate their verdicts on the murder charge facing Jerry Hutch and the charges of facilitating murder facing Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy. In the meantime, you sent in some really fantastic questions about the case and about Irish law more widely. If you have any more that you want answered, feel free to get in touch with any of us on Twitter. Lord knows we need the content now. Paul Healy and Michael O'Toole from the Irish Daily Star join me to get to the bottom of the issues you've raised. Hello lads, how are we? I'm pretty good. Good, good. Paul, how's the first day of DMOB? Uh, it, it, it's, it's nice, I feel fresh. <laughs> it's, it's good to be uh, at the back end of this. Well, we got lots of interesting questions uh, over the last few days and even overnight, so thought it was worth answering as many as we could for the, for the listener we're, we're doing this kind of late morning so it's very rare to have access to Paul Healy late morning so we're all good um listen I we, we, we all wanted to say thank you very much to the listeners who've sent in some really fantastic questions I personally think it's the best batch of questions that we've had in so far there's a serious amount of legal interest and knowledge from from you guys and to be honest if uh, if one of the three of us is ever out of action we might be calling on you to present the pod so um I'm going to start off with one here from Ari, who says, in this case, there's no jury, but in other high-profile cases such as Graham Dwyer and Anna Kregel, how can the jury be kept focused with so much external public attention? I know it'll be reinforced with them regularly that they should avoid reading public opinion and news stories, but the likelihood is they won't be able to avoid it. Well, we, we, well, we don't really know because juries, uh, jury deliberating is secret and it's an offence to talk or contact anybody in the jury even afterwards okay but what I can say there's a few things I can say I remember God it maybe was around 2003 there was a high profile murder case in Limerick and the, there was an attempt to have the case you know struck out because of prejudicial media coverage and there was a, a late judge in the Central Criminal Court Mr Justice Paul Carney and I always remember him talking about the robust you have to trust the robustness of the Irish jury so the judiciary certainly judges uh, trusts Irish jurors, and I mean, I, I, from all those high-profile court cases I've been at and Paul has been at, the judges always say, "Don't read the media, don't read the papers, don't listen to the TV," and they do that. So we have to trust the system. Nobody knows what goes on inside the jury room. Yep. Well, Mick, you were saying as well just off air that uh, kind of in relation, I suppose, more to this case around the the judges um deliberations and ultimate judgment you know they, they are seen in a different light i suppose to juries yeah i mean judges are legal professionals and they have been for you know decades really and i always remember uh, obviously miss justice tara burns is the presiding judge in this case but the other presiding judge in the special criminal court is usually mr justice tony hunt and a few months ago he was you know the the, the whole thing about prejudicial coverage and you know, it wasn't in relation to this but it was in relation to the special criminal court generally and Mr Justice Hunt said judges cannot be prejudiced so they're not the man or woman in the Clapham omnibus they are legal experts so and that's why we can do this pod because although we you know stick within I think we stick within very firm tram lines we do contextualise and stuff but you know the judges are judges and they're above merely what you know people say like us say or punters in the streets say so that's why mr justice uh, hunt was very clear about that yeah just on this case i do recall uh judge burns saying that uh that they 
were not reading the media uh, actually said that they didn't even have time to do so um but that they wouldn't be swayed by things that are said or written in the in the in the media and if you remember uh when the uh curiosity developed and this um person claimed responsibility for the regency shooting um miss justice burns did indicate that she had heard about that over the weekend and she couldn't escape couldn't avoid it um you know it was all over the media but that nonetheless as mick has already said they're legal professionals um they can cast that to one side it doesn't have an impact on their judgment sorry go ahead yeah yeah but but also it and, and you know the counterpoint to that is that there have been cases with jury trials that have collapsed because of publicity so it's a it's a real issue but look you know let's be real it's not the judge's first rodeo they're they you know they're experts and they know what to look at and what not to look at so i, I don't think there should be any worries about that really yeah well uh, on on that note or at least that theme james uh came to us on twitter saying when you say that the judges will deliberate for weeks and likely months do the judges still sit in court for other cases or are they literally dedicated to this until there is a decision i don't know is the answer to that um, I, I I think they might uh, have some case. I I I genuinely don't know, and I'm trying. I'm struggling to remember. One back. of the, I, one one of the judges on this case is involved in the uh, Paul Crosby uh, case, the Keen Mulready Woods uh, murder. Um, there there are two lads uh, charged with facilitating, and they have uh, yet to be sentenced. Um, so one of the judges in this case is actually involved in the sentencing process for that actively at this at this moment in time yeah yeah so so that's that's probably a yes that they would have other stuff that's very interesting yeah no i would have had it that they would have this would have been their sole sole purpose but hey what do i know uh okay another one here from the aptly named uh, dragon uh what were the closing arguments like in person paul were they tense did they show much by way of emotion as in the three men in the dock? <laughs> Is that what they mean? Uh, no, I think he's more more talking maybe... Well, actually, I'm, I'm talking on his behalf, but it seems to be with regards to legal teams. And I suppose if we look at them as collective, maybe. Um, well, in, in, in terms of uh, Brendan Graham, um, he was the same, I suppose, as he's always been throughout this. Uh, he's quite measured and, and uh, takes his time and calmly spoken. Um plainly spoken i mean with this i would challenge anyone to find any unambiguous uh admission i mean you know he's he's pretty he's pretty stark in his words um there's no emotion necessarily and i would say that's the the case with all three of the legal professionals in that they you know they don't bring emotion uh really into it um may if if you're asking about the, the the three men that are on trial um I, I didn't get to look at them too much because I was trying to take down every word, but I, I, I did think that, uh, how do I phrase this? Jerry Hutch uh, had his eyes quite focused at a point in the room and sort of seemed quite still and tense uh, throughout the prosecution's closing speech, I thought. Um, just a noticeable uh, body language that seemed a bit more... Uh, tense and focused uh, on one point in the room. Like, if I if I, if I'm describing this correctly, like when throughout this trial, he he seemed quite relaxed, sitting back, arm kind of on the, um, on the bench. But uh, I just thought he looked a bit tense, and you could probably understand that in that you know this person is outlining the case against him. Um, so I just thought he looked uh, tense in that moment, and I and I would say that for all three of them, that that when it came to their closing speeches, they all seemed quite tense. Um, 
I hope that answers the question. I sorry, I feel like I'm going on a tangent there, but yeah, there's no emo- there's no emotion when it comes to the legal professionals. I mean, they're doing their job, you know. Um, but uh, the atmosphere in the room. Uh, obviously everybody was just trying to to take in every single word um so it was quite intense Hmm. it's funny actually because i've attended a few of those uh court cases over the years and passive juror or whatever it might be and actually what i found amazing to begin with was how quite how um separate uh the the legal professionals seem like they seem very sort of completely cold-blooded in the best possible way it's not it's not a criticism but even gran I, I found to be quite interesting because he did begin to lose the rag a little bit and i'm not saying that's that's a, a negative oh, with, with doubt was, all. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 he was losing them losing the at one stage which i found quite funny um mick yeah you know, one of the things i liked about the irish legal system is i, I think there's an honor in it in that Brendan Gren has done both defence and prosecution cases, and and that's something that really appeals to me. That is, it, and any and look, a lot of barristers. I don't know about Sean Galan, if has he done defence work, but I know Brendan Gren has because I've covered cases where he has defended and prosecuted. And I think there's an honour in that that they're professionals, they do their job, and it, I think it's called the taxi rank system uh, when a solicitor engages. A barrister who's up next. Now, obviously, Brendan Grant would be up next. He's a, an expert in the criminal defence, but and there are people who are experts in defamation and other torts and all that sort of stuff. But that that is always something that has appealed to me, and I think it's a great sign that they just go in, do their stuff, and they fight for their client, whoever it is, prosecution or defence. Very good. Okay, well, uh, we'll move on to the next question here, which comes from Will. Uh, have the prosecution ever explained how Murphy, Bonnie, and Hutch are linked together? What's the motive for providing cars for the hit squad, as the state alleges? Which, again, I suppose we can't, we cannot really speculate on that. Uh, surely, if the three are linked, then that is a stronger case. Uh, I don't know further if you want to take that. Well, 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 there is in in terms of the case, the evidence before the court, there there is no link uh, described at any point in the evidence between Jerry Hutch, Paul Murphy, and Jason Bonney. Uh, there's plenty of links in terms of uh, Paul Murphy and Eddie Hutch. Uh, you know um and patsy hutch uh, is mentioned as well um and in terms of the two of them uh, a garda a senior garda at one stage gave evidence about the existence of the hutch criminal organization and uh, described it as a hierarchical uh, sort of system um didn't mention any names in terms of who controls this gang uh, and who's involved in it but that would be insofar as the connection between Hutch and these two lads Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy was concerned Jerry Hutch was not mentioned in relation to their case and vice versa what's the second part of that question about the vehicles what's the motive for providing cars for hit squad as the state alleges I, I, I know uh, motivation really was put forward other than I suppose there are connections uh, allegedly between these men and uh, the Hutch family so as I've mentioned so for example in the case of Paul Murphy he would have done jobs for Patsy Hutch and knew Eddie Hutch the connection there in relation to the taxi that the that he had purchased the taxi off Eddie Hutch and was paying it back over the course of a year Eddie Hutch was the person that he was supposedly meeting when he was going to Buckingham Village where the gang all met up uh, to go to the Regency Hotel um, 
and then in relation to Jason Bonney, he, he said he had connections to the Hush family as well. Uh, but the case against them really is primarily about the CCTV evidence and their movements on that day and their involvement in the alleged operation. And uh, so the evidence against them is about is about that. It's not. It didn't go into great detail about what was their motivation for doing this. That's not the case. That's against them. Does that make sense? Sure does. Sure does. Okay. Um, I'll move on to one here from uh, Piers Falaley. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm almost certainly not. Uh, if Sherry Hutch wins, who will pay his legal fees? Do we know? Yes, we do. Um, and this is very interesting. And I remember speaking to a legal expert about this a couple of years ago. So we always look about, you know, who gets legal aid. Let me tell you, I, I'm not aware of any, and maybe listeners might correct me, but I don't think anybody charged with murder has to pay their own legal bills because it's so they're so enormous. I mean, what was it, Paul? 53 days this case has gone on? 50 52, right. yeah. 52 days, right. That's multiple thousands of euro a day for a defence case. I mean, I've been involved... What do you say to me? Something like 30 grand a day? Well, there's, there's, it, it could be. It could be 15 grand. But remember, that's for a senior. The juniors have to be paid. So I think Brendan Gren has two juniors, I think. So there's that's three. Then there's the solicitors. The fees are astronomical. I mean... You know, a week-long court case in the High Court, and remember, the this the Special Criminal Court is effectively part of the. You know, it's the, it's it's effectively part of the High Court. There's the Central Criminal Court, which is the criminal part of the High Court, and then there's a the Special Criminal Court. So it's the same sort of fees, right? And you're talking tens of thousands of euro every day, and you know, a week in the High Court would easily cost 150 grand. So how could somebody, no matter what their status in life, how could somebody be expected to pay that? And really, you know, they are entitled to the best defence. So with murder cases and high court cases, criminal cases, it is usually the state that pays because it's so prohibitive. And is that, um, sorry, is is that regardless of outcome Uh, in the sense that if you're, you know, say if you're found guilty... Uh, you know, you then do you then have to pay a certain amount? You know what I mean? Uh, is there, no, 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 no. That's it. Okay. No, in civil cases, it goes to the taxing master, and he decides. I mean, if you lose, say, def- say if you lose a defamation case, you have to pay your legal fees and the other person's legal fees, which is a lot. But you know, crim- this is de- this is a different ballgame. It's somebody's liberty, so they're entitled to the best possible defence they can yeah, get. Yeah. Well, thankfully, we're not too uh, too familiar with defamation cases and payments on that. So hopefully. We're not going to be <laughs> not going to be in front of anyone with regards to the podcast. Uh, okay, no, but uh, but just to, to, to add to that, several people have asked us that question, and even in the courtroom, we were discussing, you know, about the fact that Jerry Hutch uh, has legal aid. Um, uh, given given the fact that uh, we know that that he is a very wealthy man, um, he settled a two million pound um, tax bill with the Criminal Assets Bureau uh, way back in the year two thousand. So um, he had. He was a millionaire at that point in time. We know, you know, he had a, a very nice house in Clontarf and um, had uh, involvement with properties abroad as well. So he was a very, very wealthy man. And and some people have asked uh, the legitimate question of who, well, who's paying his legal bills because he's a very wealthy man. But as Mix pointed out, it's still a hefty bill, and anyone charged with murder um, is entitled to this, um, irregardless of their wealth. But but we know. You know, people are asking that question because of of Jerry Hutch's uh, obvious wealth in the past. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've covered quite a few that are kind of adjacent to the case, I suppose, and more more general questions. But we'll move on to actual 
uh, questions with regard to the case itself. Um, Stephen here on Twitter has asked, if Jonathan Dowdle's wife was involved in the booking at the Regency, why was she not charged? I, I, I guess we can only answer this to a degree. But, well, actually, maybe we can't answer it at all. Well, I, no, I think we can. Look, we don't know the inner workings of... So the way it works is the guards do their investigative file and they send it to the DP, Director of Public Prosecutions. And the Director of Public Prosecutions, as the clues in the title, directs prosecutions. So they say, X is to be charged with this, Y is to be charged with this. There's not enough evidence to support the, the likelihood of a conviction in this. So that's gone. So we don't know. And they, 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 they've started giving explanations to victims, but they don't really, expl- they never explain to us. So we don't know. It's, it's, we, we, and we'll never know really. Well, I, I think something that might maybe possibly explain it is the charge itself, I think, is um, paraphrasing, but it's something like knowingly assisting a criminal organization. And I think the implication was that Jonathan Dowdall and his father would have known. Uh, whether uh, deliberately or recklessly uh, that they had assisted a criminal organization in a crime and perhaps there isn't really evidence in relation to Patricia Dowdall in that regard because she was just rang up and asked by Patrick Dowdall to uh, to book the room whereas Patrick Dowdall was hands-on with the cash and Jonathan Dowdall drove him there and Jonathan was involved in all of that so the father and son uh, certainly pleaded guilty to an offence where they had knowledge that they were helping a criminal gang um, whereas maybe the wife uh, wasn't really uh, act- as actively involved she was nearly merely a pawn in that operation that, that would be my just from surmising from the charge that they pleaded guilty to but we but but we don't know maybe the guards looked at it differently we don't know anyway yeah of course no no and there's actually a related one that came by a DM. Uh, what was the purpose of the room being booked for Flat Cap? Did he stay there? Was it for reconnaissance? Um, I was trying to think about this because we, we did cover this, but I wasn't sure if we came to a specific conclusion. I'm completely puzzled by this. I don't... I've never covered a murder where someone has been at the location for such a long time before the murder. It's usually, you know, in and out and... You know, see from the outside perspective, did they need to be there? Could they not have just gone in? So I, I've always been puzzled by that. I simply cannot get my head around it. It's an unusual one, yeah. And I mean, again, Kevin Murray didn't disguise himself in any way, seen on the CCTV footage going up and down to the room in the lobby of the hotel, all that beforehand. Um, it's a puzzling one. Jonathan Dowdall uh, surmised you have to take his word for it that he was being used um in a way and and then felt perhaps that in the booking of the room and with kevin murray that it was all to suit this possible narrative that it wasn't the hutches that were involved but maybe dissidents or uh, the ira or whatever but we don't know we can only speculate it's a complete head it is for me a complete head scratcher because usually criminals leave as small a footprint as possible right and you know, Kevin Murray was there the night before, and uh, it's it's I, I it's a real head melter for me. Well, no, so we we're going to come to another question in a bit where we can talk about you know um, maybe the possible motivation to divert attention away from the Hutches, and maybe that might go away to expect. But we're only speculating based off what we know uh, from the from the facts of this uh, that that maybe uh, there was a narrative that uh, they, were, they were trying to put across that it wasn't the Hutch gang that it was others that were involved and they were set up perhaps in some way 
whether no whether whether knowingly or unknowingly because obviously Kevin Murray made no efforts to disguise himself and maybe he didn't care because of his motor neuron disease and knew he was going to die I don't know we don't know the ins and outs but yeah um we might come to that question now actually and I'd like to um thank Rich who sent this question in because it really uh it really got both of all of us thinking um this is quite a monster question so <laughs> a multi-parter so uh, you'll just bear with me for the moment but I was just listening to one of the new episodes and the subject of why Flatcap didn't book the room given that he wore no disguise was raised. It got me thinking there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest the plan was to implicate and shift blame for the Regency to IRA groups. All the way through, there are instances where IRA organizations are brought into the frame and the number of times this occurs seems to be too many to be coincidental. The hotel room was booked by an individual with IRA links. Flatcap is the only person identifiable during the attack and has IRA links. People in fake guard uniforms using AK-47 type guns associated with terrorist groups gives the attack a paramilitary feel. The guns given to the IRA during the attempt for them to mediate the feud, who would then be in possession of weapons used in the shooting and linked to them, in brackets. Additional question, why would they be, uh, why would they be interested in guns that are that hot? Um, anyway, I'm just going to rattle through uh, the rest of this. Uh, from my understanding, they have, uh, the IRA have no desire to be associated with OCG groups, uh, demonstrated by the fact that Dowdle had to leave the landing in prison. So why are they so accommodating when it looks like they're being fitted up for the Regency attack? Do you think the plan from the Hutch side from day one was to make it look like an IRA attack? I appreciate there's a lot to unpick there, but... Um, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Rich has missed his calling as a podcast presenter, I'll tell you. I, I know Mick is going to have a very uh, educated and, and well-balanced uh, argument here, so I'm going to get in ahead with my less educated <laughs> rambling. Um, yeah, look, I, I definitely think, and we were even talking about it, I can remember in and around the time of the Regency, that, that certainly certain elements uh, within the people who arranged and organized this hit wanted to divert attention away from themselves. And, and if you remember, Mick, there was a statement from someone who claimed that they were in the continuity IRA uh, like a couple of days after the Regency. I, I I know exactly when it was. It was on the Monday. It was a couple of... So the Regency was on a Friday the 5th, remember? This was on the Monday. A couple of hours before uh, Eddie Hutch was murdered. That was, you know, that was... That, that, yes. And it was hilarious because... Uh, a magazine, it came out and RT ran it and all that sort of stuff. And a magazine said, all these crime correspondents thinking it was criminals behind this. What a bunch of idiots. So I always laughed at that. Right. So, um, uh, yes, that is one of the things that has really stuck out with me. And you know what else has stuck out with me? It was a line in the recording. If you remember this, Paul, when Jonathan, Jonathan Dowdle said to Jerry Hutch, effectively, I'm not, I'm going to paraphrase. That was a real stroke of genius using the AKs. Right. Why? Because it portrayed it because AKs are commonly used by paramilitaries. So what was he saying? It was really like, you know, people leading people down a blind alley. That, and he said that was, a you know, paraphrase. That was a real stroke of genius. So all these things are sitting in my head. Continuity, uh, claiming it, uh, Dowdall saying that, the use of the Kalashnikovs. One thing I will say, the, the Hutch crime gang generally old and young people have a reputation for so much planning it's almost over planning it's like a game of so they're not ordinary criminals who go in and bish bash bosh they over plan or they plan everything to the nth degree and i was wondering is there an element here of let's build a facade 
a really, really carefully planned facade. But then why would, you know, the IRA, well, maybe, or the, and even then the IRA, I've spoken about this before, when you're charged with being an IRA member in the Special Criminal Court, that could be the real IRA, could be the continuity IRA, could be the new IRA. You know what I mean? So everybody thinks the IRA as in the provost, right? So, but why would they want to necessarily kill the Kinnans? I think within 10 minutes of the Regency, everybody knew and suspected who was behind it. So it's a bit strange. Do you think it was important then from the Hutch perspective that they got these weapons as quickly as they could because they were acting not too long after the Regency to get those weapons into the hands of uh, people they knew up north? Would that again maybe suit their narrative that if it, 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 it's not our guns, it's theirs? I'm just I'm just speculating now, but I I I wonder is it possible? And I'm just struggling. Has this ever come out where the 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 the, the Hodge gang got the rifles from? Maybe they got them from the dissidents in the first place. Perhaps I know that uh, Dowdell talked about it being a gift, but maybe they were. You know, I'm only going by what I can remember, and it was more intelligence that it was all about giving the guns back. Yeah. That they borrowed them from them? Would that not make more sense? See, this was the thing. So, so sorry, just to bring the listeners up to a kind of private conversation that myself and Mick had had. Uh, like, I, I was trying to figure out why the IRA, whatever, you know, stripe, even dissident, would want uh, three criminality-linked guns. You know, as in, is it so difficult to get your hands on weapons of that caliber, no pun intended, don't, you know, I, I, it just struck me as very odd that they'd be like, yeah, sure, I'd love them. Send them up. Like, it just seems really odd. It seems like you're inviting pressure. They get found in a barn somewhere. Someone's like, hey, what's the crack? That's a good point. But wasn't there some suggestion... Sorry. Wasn't there some suggestion that some of the individuals they were meeting, the likes of Shane Roan and... Um, I'll be careful what I say, but that they weren't real... Uh, players in terms of they weren't... They weren't uh, part of what you might call an established you know ira group or whatever they were more kind of nearly rogue dissidents uh that that might have formed like this is this is the problem with when it when you when, as mick says you speak about you get charged with being a member of the ira there are so many different splinter groups it's not the privates anymore um and 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 and, and doubt all had had hutch meeting with all sorts of characters um a whole cast of characters so I, where, where, where are they dealing with the real deal with some of these men, uh, or, 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 or people who are? I'm not saying they weren't serious criminals. Obviously, they were, but they were, were they more rogue characters as part, uh, rather than being part of a, a an established uh, centralized organization. organization. Yeah. I, I, and I, you know, and I think Kieran makes a great point. Why were the why were the the rifles not chopped up and thrown in the Liffey, right? Like, there is a trend particularly with the Kinnans and on the other side, that when they carry out murders, they drop the pistol at the scene. They're gone. I mean, I can remember, I think I, I will own some, some proceedings are active, but that has happened in, I think, most of the Kinnan hits. They drop the gun at the scene. So when they're scarpering and they're caught, there's no gun. You know what I mean? So the Kinnans probably have better access to firearms because if you remember in February 2017, there was a massive guard raid in Rathcool where they found the Kinnans arsenal and it was terrifying. And the amount of weapons, machine pistols, pistols and ammunition, thousands of rounds of ammunition. So they had access to them. So maybe there's just some things that don't make sense to me. Why keep them? Why give them to them? 
why not get rid of them ASAP? Because these things are really the biggest, you know, yeah. one of the most infamous murders in Irish history. And you'd want to get rid of those pieces yeah, very quickly. Quite literal smoking gun in the case. Look, mm-hmm. it's mad. Um, but it seems, it seems they put a lot of thought into the movement of them and where they were going. So we don't know the motivation for that, but I'm just saying that they were supposed to be going back to lads up north. Does that again suit, suit this um, narrative that the Hutch gang, we think, might have been trying to portray, uh, that it wasn't us, it was them? I, I, I will say, uh, sorry, I will say one thing about the, the the provision IRA campaign, and maybe there's a muscle memory for dissidents in this. They're very, 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 very protective of weapons. And we know that firearms used by the IRA, Kalashnikov especially, you know, were used in multiple murders because the, when they've been caught, they've been linked to four or five or six murders. So there might be, with Republicanism, a mindset about we can't get rid of firearms. We just can't, you know, because they're so important to them. And Kalashnikovs are very significant weapons. Make do and mend. <laughs> no, but it's true because, like, I mean, you don't have access to, you know, it's not the provos. You don't have access to Libyan arms, like, shipments coming in, so... This person's question, unfortunately, has just raised further questions that were, which, <laughs> which are very interesting to talk about, but we don't have the answers. I mean, yeah, how did they get the guns in the first place, as we said? And um, who got Kevin Murray involved? There's some suggestion uh, that uh, there was a suggestion from, from people up north uh, that, that Jonathan Dowdall became worried that he was being blamed for getting Kevin Murray involved, although he vehemently mm. denied that. And you also remember that we have unexplained trips from Jonathan Dowdall up north in January before the Regency. I'm only merely stating these things. I'm not uh, making any further suggestion no, beyond that. But there are lots of unanswered questions. Who got Kevin Murray involved? How did they get the guns initially? Um, they're all very good questions uh, that we don't, have the, we don't have the answers to. And that is your lot for today. We'll be back with you early next week with another of these episodes. So stay tuned. But in the meantime, have a lovely weekend and we'll speak to you soon. Take care.